Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2022 on steampunk and Hyao Miyazaki. Once again, I'm being cheeky. Um, I don't actually think that Hyao Miyazaki invented steampunk. Um, but again, just like with the last lecture where I said that Disney was a huge contributor to the aesthetic of steampunk, Miyazaki, one of the giants of the look and the feel. And the difference here is that with Disney, I had to digress quite a bit. Um, with Miyazaki, we're, you know, we're, we're sticking pretty close to uh, his vision at the very least, although uh, there are instances where that vision was taken and run with by other um, creative minds. Um, but at, and also, unlike Disney, where when we talk about Disney creating steampunk, we're not talking about Walt Disney creating steampunk necessarily. We're talking about um, Disney as, as an organization, as corporation. Um, in, you know, films ranging all the way from 1954 up to 2001, 2002. Um, whereas with Miyazaki, there's this focused, there's this focused, um, creative agenda, we might say. Um, and I, I bring this up because there, there have been, um, instances over the years where people will say something along the lines of, uh, you know, J Japan has finally discovered steampunk. You know, I remember I don't I don't remember exactly what year this happened, but it was it was well into the second wave. So we're looking at sometime after 2010. Um that the Japanese are getting into steampunk, they're finally discovering steampunk, and I thought it was such a strange thing to say. I hadn't done a ton of work on steampunk anime at that point, but I at least knew that um that there had been these earlier instances uh from you know TV shows like Full Metal Alchemist to films like Castle in the Sky and and it, it was one of those very ethnocentric moments right where somebody's like steampunk's an american thing or steampunk's a north american thing or just an anglo thing and it's like no it's not and what i'd like to argue in this lecture is that it wasn't and it was it wasn't even just that like steampunk was happening in japan on some sort of um parallel trajectory to what was going on in america but that miyazaki's vision was another you know one of those things that contributed just like disney's um, we add up all those different films that all those people would see over time that, that Miyazaki's vision, um, and, and it's not just, not just the films that he made, but the films that were inspired by him, um, were instrumental in kicking off the second wave of steampunk in North America in, uh, in the 21st century, in the first decade of the 21st century. Um, so we can jump all the way back to... 1984 in the film Nausicaa, um, the Valley of the Wind, uh, the design of, um, the ships, uh, the, um, the vessels, the flying vessels, 
has a strong retrofuturist feel. It's got that hyper vintage thing going on. Certain amount of techno fantasy because those are not particularly aerodynamic vessels. I mean, Nausicaa's um, vessel is, uh, but the you know these these great big ships that look like conglomerate pieces of B fifty two bombers just riveted together aren't. Um, they they have that element of techno fantasy to them. Um, looks looks like science, but we're not really sure how it works. But you know, these the, the, there's this retro futurist feel here. Now, does that mean that Nausicaa is a steampunk film from top to bottom? It gets included on a lot of um, best steampunk anime lists. Um, I don't really think that that's the conversation we should be having. Like what what goes in and what stays out. Um, I'm not interested in inclusivity or exclusion. Um, but rather looking at um, the pedigree, the uh, evolution of of a thing, and we can see elements of this retro futurist vibe, this hyper vintage vibe in Miyazaki's work throughout his work, not even just in the films that I'm going to talk about today, but I think that it's present even in other movies that he's made, um, like Porco Rosso. Uh, an interest in, um, you know, the flying machines of yore, the, the of of yesteryear. I don't want to say of yore. Yore's a little too far back. That's not vintage anymore. That's that's uh, that's ancient. But these vessels have a strong steampunk look to them. We're going to come back around to that when we look at the flying vessels in one of Miyazaki's later films. Um, but somebody might look at Nausicaa and say, no, that's just straight up fantasy. And they, you know, the flying vessels, sure, I suppose uh, you could argue that, but, you know, no, we, we have to get away from that because there's, steampunk gets used frequently as an aesthetic in narrative works that aren't steampunk per se you know like when uh rory gilmore and her boyfriend and their old friends get dressed up in steampunk in the uh, netflix sequel to the gilmore girls tv show we don't go oh well i guess gilmore girls is, is steampunk now we just recognize that the show is using steampunk in that moment so Miyazaki's vision here, though, I don't even know if we could say that he's using steampunk because, again, the term hasn't been created. Um, but I think what Miyazaki's doing in Japan at this time in movies like Nausicaa and Castle in the Sky is that he is helping craft the steampunk aesthetic, but he's doing it completely independent of um, Blaylock and Jeter and Powers who are doing it at the very same time. That's what's what I think is super fascinating about this is that we have a parallel trajectory in terms of years that Jeter and Blaylock and Powers were writing their steampunk in the late seventies up into the eighties. They were publishing steampunk still at this point. So in 1986, when Studio Ghibli releases uh, Castle in the Sky, La Puta. They um, they are doing something on the other side, not quite the other side of the world, but you know what I mean when I say that. We're, we're separated by an ocean and language. And this is before the internet is, the, is this thing that you know connects us to everyone. And anime isn't uh, the import that it is today. Like when we think about the ubiquity of anime and manga in in, uh, you know, fandom in North America. I think it's hard for us to imagine just 
how you know foreign these movies were. Just to return to Nausicaa for a moment, this movie was released in North America direct to video uh, as a um, very hacked up and uh, heavily edited and and very revised. It's really nothing like Miyazaki's film, um, a movie called Warriors of the Wasteland. Um, and I've never seen that version. I've just read uh, how many changes were made to it. But that that was how anime was getting to us. It was it was it was very spotty. You didn't have a ton of anime showing up on um, in American theaters or North American theaters, Canadian television. Um, we had little bits and pieces of it, but it wasn't what it is today. And we have to keep that in mind as we look at this. That we have these three writers in. California generating uh, steampunk in literary form. And in Japan, we've got Miyazaki crafting it in uh, cinematic format, in animation. Once again, with this film, um, strong retrofuturist techno uh, fantasy vibes. The opening credit sequence is absolutely gorgeous, and in some ways, much like Karel Zeman's uh, film, um, um, you know, the wonders, the miraculous adventures of, of Jules Verne, that we're getting the this sort of line drawing approach, this engraving approach, that this is meant to evoke not only the time of a vintage past, but also the art of a vintage past in uh, French artists like uh, Robida, um, and, and that, they're, that this is trying to evoke those things in the credit sequence for Castle in the Sky. But once again, the, the flying ships, uh, now a bit more, I think, streamlined in some ways, less sort of uh, heavy metal <laughs> as they were in uh, Nausicaa, an airship with airship pirates. Oh, gosh. I mean, what could be more steampunk than pirates in the air um, and coming in on their flapters? I absolutely love I was reading in the, the art of Castle in the Sky, that that is what these these vehicles are called, flapters. Uh, and I think that's that's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but the design of, you know, the ships like this and the, and the Goliath um, that uh, Colonel Muska r- flies uh, all have this great uh, retro-futurist vibe. Uh, the ornithopters or the flapters, how do they fly? Well, they just do because they're cool. They're old and they're vintage and you can see they've got wings. That's how they fly. Um, not particularly uh, rigorous in terms of, you know, the, the Stephen Baxter hard SF approach to saying how things work, right? Um, and this this film even takes a step further than some of the other steampunk uh, works that we look at uh, in its inclusion of a magical fuel source or magical object um because while there are lots of like the flapters themselves i mean there's nothing really potentially magical about that it's just that in terms of real world physics it wouldn't work right um even the 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 goliath as airship is is a sort of hyperbole of the graf zeppelin um but wonderful and we get this sort of never never land of this vintage past in in Castle in the Sky. Where does it take place? Um, the research that Miyazaki did, along with his team, took him to Wales. Uh, but is this, is, is what we're seeing here a perfect recreation of a Victorian 
vintage past or is it something else? Is it something looser? Is it sort of a vague European look? And there is a term, which I'm not going to say because I will butcher it, but there's a term in Japanese that means the Paris of our dreams. The Paris of our dreams. And I've read um, that this idea of the Paris of our dreams shows up in a lot of Japanese fiction. It shows up in Miyazaki's work for sure, but it shows up in other anime as well, that there is a fa- there is a fascination in Japan for the 19th century or industrial look of Europe. We can, we can sort of, we can bring London in on that. We can bring the Victorian world in on that, but I, I think it's remiss for us to just go, oh, well, this is totally, um, Britain having, or sorry, uh, Japan having this, uh, fetish for Victoriana. It's not Victoriana because this, this term literally has the word Paris in it. So this is the Paris of our dreams. It's this European, European city of our dreams. It's not, the real thing. It's not the real London or Amsterdam or Paris of the 19th century, but rather this fantastical version of it. And I think if for no other reason, Miyazaki is an excellent study for us looking at steampunk because he's not slavishly recreating, um, you know, the Victorian period in his, in, in these steampunk films. Um, Castle in the Sky tells the story of a young man named Pazu, and he just, he, this girl who floats down from the sky, she gets blown out of the sky. Uh, or, no, see, she doesn't get blown out of the sky. She jumps out of the sky. She falls off, off the side of um, the airship at the beginning. Um, and uh, and he catches her, right? Um, but she, she floats right down. We want to remember that image. It's a crucial, crucial image. It's an image that gets repeated we might say, um, by other fantasy works. And uh, those of you who are familiar with Neil Gaiman's uh, Stardust will know that, you know, he has that same image. Um, and, you know, people are, you know, oh, you, rip, you ripped them off. And it's like, no, I don't think that's a ripoff. I think it's what we call an homage. And we're going to see a bunch of those today. And that's why I want to make sure that we understand that just because two narratives employ the same set of motifs, even if it's like identical in certain ways. Um, it's like a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, uh, Jackie Baker. Uh, she's a Jacqueline Baker. She's a Canadian, uh, fiction writer. And she, whenever I talk about, um, stuff that I want to do that other people have already done, I'm like, yeah, I can't do that because you know, that person's already made that game or written that story. And she says, but you haven't written it your way. And I think that's a really important um, concept to to think about as we look about the pe- look at the pedigree of steampunk and anime and Miyazaki's contribution to those things. But Shita is this girl who falls from the sky, and um, she's got this mysterious we want to say amulet, this mysterious stone, um, and it's it's made from depending on which version you see ethereum or volucite um which has many of the properties of hg wells's caverite so it's a it's a it's a stone that you know is anti-gravity um a magical stone that lets you float right uh that's not science it's maybe wildly science fiction, but I would say it's more fantasy as an element. And because everybody wants this, this, uh, this stone, because it's this, it's this powerful source of energy, um, they are pursued, Pazu, Pazu and Shida are 
pursued by the airship pirates and by the villain uh, Colonel Muska. And these elements, too, are things that we're going to see repeated in some later anime as homage, but they're, they're sort of these, these, these features that keep showing up, and they connect Miyazaki's films with a number of other uh, steampunk anime works. The kids being pursued will be a feature that we're going to see again later with Katsuhiro Otomo's um, Steam Boy. And it will also appear in a TV show that um, was more or less Miyazaki's idea, but he didn't develop it. He turned it into this film, and the uh, the idea that he pitched got turned into um, a TV show called Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water. Um, but near the end of uh, Castle in the Sky, we, we, we arrive at the Castle in the Sky, um, which is initially, it seems like this utopian space. Um, like, everything is perfect, it's just wonderful. And then there's the revelation that this floating castle is also potentially like the Death Star, um, a battle station, right? That it can be weaponized, and monstrously so. And again, we're going to want to remember that feature for later on as well. But when we look at the the castle in the sky, we're again seeing a very strong fantasy element here. And in my class, uh, we've been talking a bit about how steampunk utilizes both uh, elements of science fiction as well as fantasy. And when I first got into steampunk as research, I was frequently told that steampunk was science fiction, but that it wasn't fantasy. If it was fantasy, then you called it gas lamp fantasy. That is what I was told. People had this idea that if you, you know, if you didn't have industrial technology, then, then you'd, you'd be something else. You had to have industrial technology. It had to be science fiction. Um, but whenever I looked at the industrial technology, I was like, it's a veneer. It's just this surface. It looks like science, but there's no indication of how it actually works. And, you know, as in the case of the flapters for Castle in the Sky, they, you go, that wouldn't even really work, but it looks like it. So then we go, oh, that must be science fiction. And so it's this, this isn't me wanting to go like, and it is, or it isn't. Again, I'm not interested in exclusivity or inclusivity insofar as like, does it belong or not? That I couldn't care less. I think what we're seeing here is a subgenre of science fiction and fantasy. I think it's drawing from both, and it's not too worried about whether or not it gets to cross the streams, as it were. Um, so, you know, it's Miyazaki playing in a, in a, in a toy box, a toolbox of industrial aesthetics, but also um, as a creative person, someone who had this deep love for fantasy. Miyazaki was a huge fan of Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, and it leaves this in incredible impression on his work, not in some sort of slavish, slavish Terry Brooks sort of Shannara kind of way, where he just, you know, does, does another version of Tolkien's quest, but rather that some of the ways that Tolkien creates secondary worlds and some of the themes, and just the wild abandon to be 
creative in ways that no one had ever seen before. I think all of those things manifest in, in Miyazaki's work. And because he's helping to develop steampunk, steampunk is consequently, um, at the end of the day, I think we can say that it is both inspired by and reaction to the kind of fantasy that Tolkien pioneered, that people were looking for new avenues that weren't one more quest to destroy some talisman. Although, arguably, that's kind of what happens uh, in Castle in the Sky as well, isn't it? If you know it, I don't want to. I don't want to give spoilers. I mean, I don't, I don't know that spoilers really matter in a course, but you know, I want you to have your own experience of these things. Um, Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water was a television series that was produced by Gainax. This is the company that brought you Neon Genesis Evangelion. And it was Hideaki Anno who uh, worked on uh, Nadia, Nadia um, taking Miyazaki's idea. They were friends, uh, collaborators, and running with the ball. And so Nadia is like, like they both, they, both Castle in the Sky and Nadia have the same story, but they are different narrative representations of that story. So we once again we get you know orphan children, a mysterious girl with mysterious blue pendant, and uh, a boy uh, inventor. In this particular case, we're going to remember want to remember that boy inventor for later on because that's going to come back around to us. Um, and not in an anime way, although heavily inspired by anime. I don't want to. I don't want to say what it is. Maybe you already know. Um, but if you take a look at the character of Jean in Nadia, Jean, Jean, um, he has this, you know, typical boy inventor look to him. The big round spectacles, the loud bow tie, the must blonde hair. Um, Nadia has a more exotic look. She is a, a, supposedly a circus performer, um, but the way that she is coded says that she is other. She is from outside the um, the society that Jean is a part of. Um, and and that, too, is something that's going to get revisited. So we're going to see this in homage later on as well. Um, but Nadia possesses a mysterious blue jewel. Ah, lo and behold, that everybody wants again. And we see that pe people have recognized that there's this correlation between the blue gem in Nadia, the blue gem in Castle in the Sky, and the blue gem in Disney's Atlantis. Um, and they're like, oh, they're stealing. And it's like, no, I, again, I think that that is homage. I think that the Disney animators were trying to do something genuinely new in 2000. Remember again, that at that point, anime still wasn't the ubiquitous thing that it is today, but hardcore animators working uh, for Disney knew about series like Nadia and they knew about, um, you know, a movie like Castle in the Sky. Once again, though, because there's that pursuit of this gem as miraculous fuel source, uh, you know, they want to weaponize it. Um, that gets, that get, there's, we've got those recurrences. Uh, but we've also got a really interesting visual motif that gets utilized um, in, 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 a, in a steampunk film a decade later. So um, Nadia is released in 1989. 
And there's this sequence where Jean is getting away from the grandest gang, this group, that, one of the groups anyway, that wants to steal the gems. So the grandest gang in, in some ways is very much like the humorous air, airship pirates or air pirates of Castle in the Sky. And then we have a much greater and more serious threat um, in, in Nadia that mirrors uh, Colonel Muska trying to take um, the amulet from uh, Sheeta. But in Nadia, we've got this chase sequence with a robot with these arms that reach out kind of like Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man and uh, Jean and, um, and Nadia are on this, basically it's like a, it's like a wheel. It's a, it's a mono wheel. That's what they call them. Uh, it's a, and it's, it's a steam powered mono wheel. Now, if you look at that, as it's rendered in Nadia, we've got all sorts of primary colors. Nadia's hair is purple. Jean's outfit is this bright blue. The brown of the mono wheel is quite bright. The lines on the mono wheel are uh, not perfect, perfect machine lines. And some of that is the limitations of animation in 1989. But I also think it's really interesting to consider this as, as a, an instance of the evolution of steampunk as an aesthetic, because by the time we get to the second wave, people got pretty exclusionary about what could be included as steampunk and what couldn't. And if you had too much in the way of bright colors, there were a number of instances where people say, well, no, 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 I just don't think that you could consider that steampunk. So um, I remember having conversations with people about the idea that Full Metal Alchemist wasn't, because if you looked at, uh, you know, um, the metal arm of the lead character and his brother's armor. It didn't look gritty enough. It didn't look steampunky enough. And yet, if we were to take that and compare it with, um, you know, the, the look in Nadia, there is a greater correlation there. And I think it's just, I think it's one more instance, like Michael Moorcock's cover for uh, Warlord of the Air, changing over time. Once again, we're seeing an evolution of the way the steampunk gets rendered. And in its early instances, super bright colors, uh, a riot of colors, if you will, and not the same kind of really perfect looking industrial aesthetic, but sort of a more vague and general one. And again, some of that is just the limitations of animation in 1989. But even so, I think we have to consider that in the evolution of the mode of the aesthetic coming around potentially full circle to the riot of colors that we saw in Jingle Jangle. And so, and, and some of my students have even said, like, I expect steampunk to be grittier, more sepia tone, where's all the browns, I, I didn't expect it to be this colorful. And all of those observations are based in a, an expression of steampunk um, that went for about, you know, that's maybe maybe a decade would be the right way to say it. You know, going all the way from uh, the advent of um, steampunk as fashion trend online uh, with Kit Stolen's work uh, in 2003, uh, the makers guys like Jake Von Slatt and Datamancer coming into uh, the four in 2007, running up into the heyday of steampunk conventions uh, and the ubiquity of leather and metal. And there was, it really was this like living, breathing attempt at a antique photograph in cosplay. 
but what we're seeing here is is a, is a, is to some degree a rejection of that, or not a rejection of that, but you know the idea that once upon a time it wasn't so. But if we jump ahead in time to 2004, so again we've got Kit Stolen doing the fashion thing in 2003, which is I think one of the great kickoffs for the second wave of steampunk, uh, the maker movement um, in steampunk with Jake Von Slatt doing a what was a pretty high profile interview with Wired magazine in 2007. But right in between those things, in 2004, we have the release of Katsuhiro Otomo's Steam Boy. And there is a sequence where Ray Steam, the hero of the tale, the Steam Boy himself, voiced by Anna Paquin, actually, um, in the English version anyway, um, fleeing a vehicle that has these grasping arms. Everything about this shot is a echo a mirror an homage to the shot in nadia and when you look at the somewhat fraught development of steam boy um you find out that it was it took years for this film to be made so nadia would have been pretty fresh in the minds of the creative team that otomo assembled to make this movie one of the most expensive anime ever made um it is a gorgeous film but we can see if we if you jump back and forth between uh nadia and steam boy the the very same sequence with a mono wheel running away from the grasping arm uh pursuer you can see that the that Steam Boy is far more desaturated, that the color palette isn't that vibrant, and it's more... We have that very clear 19th century industrial look. This film is trying very hard to be uh, realistic in terms of its representation of 19th century London. Like, really hard. They work overtime on it. Um and you should know if you don't like if you're unaware Atomo was the guy who made Akira and Akira was one of the only anime that anyone knew about in North America for most of the 90s uh, i remember watching Akira with my roommates in the 90s and we were like we don't even know what we just saw we don't understand it it was super cool though but Akira was the anime in North America, in many people's minds. And it was super successful, both in Japan and uh, around the world. And so people, you know, Katsuhiro Otomo's going to make another movie. Okay, that's exciting, because he made Akira. And then he released Steam Boy, and people were really, really disappointed, because it ain't Akira. But I think it's it's a beautiful movie. It's a little slow-moving at points, but I think it's, it's a gorgeous film. But once again, we get people who want to steal the precious something. Although this time, it's not a magic rock it's a steam ball. It's this riveted sphere that contains steam at a pressure that approaches the power of the atom. I think really that's what this film tries to do is it tries to take steam technology and say, well, what if steam technology could be as wonderful or as devastating as atomic power? Um, Which is bananas. But it's fun. It's techno fantasy at the end of the day. Um, and so Ray is pursued just like, just like Nadia and Jean, just like Padzu and Shida. And so we've got this repetition of, of these motifs over and over again in these films, a narrative thread that's running all the way back to Castle in the Sky, up through Nadia, into 
Atlantis as well. Although, I mean, they're obviously the plot is different, but we still have the magical blue rock. Um, and Jean from Nadia certainly looks a lot like, uh, the hero, um, of, of Atlantis. There's some really interesting correlations, uh, between those, a, a narrative visual pedigree, really. Um, so, you know, Ray runs away just like Patsu and Shida do. And, and so we, there's that repetition of these things over and over again, right down to even the, the big burly guy who comes out in Castle in the Sky and says, who are you looking for? Here's a character like that in, uh, in Steam Boy. And I really think it's Otomo tipping the hat to Miyazaki. One more tip of the hat from Otomo to Miyazaki is the steam castle at the end of Steam Boy. So once you have the steam ball, this is why everybody wants it. Once you have the steam ball, you can power something like the steam castle. It's this massive industrial looking Death Star-esque steampunk. Let's just say steampunk Death Star. That'd be a great way to say it. It's, it's terrestrial. It doesn't go into space. It just flies above London. Um, but the original vision for it was utopic. It was meant to be a wonderful playground uh, with uh, carousels and, and, you know, mechanized toys, basically. Um, and that, for my students, are going to go, toy makers, because we've been talking about toy makers and steampunk. So there's a repetition of that motif. But the repetition that I'm more interested in right now is that I think the steam castle at the end of Steam Boy is a direct reference. It is a potentially covert illusion, um, unless you're a big anime fan. I'm pretty sure Japanese audiences wouldn't have missed it, although I, I can't say that for sure. I've never really looked into it. Um, but we get that repetition of this great big, this great big vessel that will fly above the surface of the earth, and it could be a paradise, but it's been weaponized. And Ray has to bring it down at the very end of the film. Uh, it's a gorgeous movie. The production design, if nothing else, um, I think could have been like, I'm, you know, it's very difficult to draw correlations of inspiration, but it's, it's hard to discount the anticipation that people had for the, the, the next film from the guy who made Akira and the fact that steampunk gets pretty damn brown in in the months to come now there are all sorts of reasons for this and i'm in no way suggesting that steam boy is responsible but it is one more link in the chain it is one more node along the way it is one more uh stop along the journey we might say um this is this movie people say oh yeah that's definitely steampunk because it's got that uh desaturated color palette because the aesthetic of the machines is so clearly uh 19th century european industrial and I have to say 19th century European industrial because while we're on the subject of Japan, I think it's worth knowing that Japan came to that sort of industrial revolution in the 20th century, not the 19th. And so when people are like, it has to be Victorian, one, one, more, it's one more time where I'm like, no, no, and no, because not everybody got industry the same way uh, that England did or, you know, even the way that it played out over uh, the European continent. But it's a it's a high flying adventure, um, and uh, it's one of my favorite um, steampunk films. I love watching it. I love the score. Um, Jablonski, 
Jablonski. That's the, that the guy who did it. I, Steve? It's Steve Jablonski. He's the guy that did the soundtrack for the Transformers as well. Every time I say Jablonski, I just want to go like, you know who did that soundtrack? It was little Stevie Jablonski. That's who did it. Um, but sorry for that digression. I'll just move on now. Um, some of the coolest visuals of the film are sadly in the uh, end title sequence, um, which I've learned since. It's like it's like when you watch Full Metal Alchemist and there's all this stuff in the opening credits and you're like, man, I can't wait to see that. And it never happens. And that's the title credits, uh, the end credits to Steam Boy. I think there was the hope that the film would do really well. It didn't. Um, and that they would get to do sequels. I think it's sad. Um, I would... If nothing else, give us give us a manga. Give us a manga. Howl's Moving Castle comes out the same year. So you get Steam Boy and you get Howl's Moving Castle. Now, Howl's Moving Castle still retains a lot of the bright visual palette, the bright color palette of Miyazaki's earlier works. This is a Studio Ghibli film again. Um... And it was one that initially uh, Miyazaki had hand over, handed over to a different director. So he wasn't there from the beginning to helm the film, but he did bring it in to port, as it were. Um, but the aesthetic look of the film now is is quite different from, uh, say, Nadia. Uh, it's a little more industrial than we saw with either Nausicaa or Castle in the Sky. It's just that evolution. In this case, I think it's absolutely the evolution of animation because if you look at the manga of Nausicaa, you can see Miyazaki's style was already where the the design style of, of Howl's Moving Castle would be. Uh, this this is uh, famously a, an adaptation of Diana Wynne Jones's book, and people will love to tell you it's nothing like the book. Um, and but this is one of those cases. This is really one of those cases where an adaptation is as good or better. And I'm this is all secondhand information, people. I've never read Diana Wynne Jones's uh, Howl's Moving Castle. But I have it on good authority from my Miyazaki expert that the film is just as good, if not better. I also know some people who are like, the book is better, but I'm pretty sure they're bibliophiles. Um, and so I don't know if I can trust them. The look of the, the moving castle itself, no one's going to deny that this is this has got a steampunk aesthetic to it, right? We've got scrap iron, we've got these wild turrets. It's, it's got a, like, it's, it's got this kind of Terry Gilliam thing going on for it. The guy who did the crazy animation for um, Monty Python's Flying Circus went on to make a bunch of films uh, where that same kind of madcap aesthetic was part of that. Um, but I think this is still, you know, we, we could say it looks like Gilliam, but I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that Miyazaki was uh, inspired by in that case, because I think when you look at the, when you look at the breadth of Miyazaki's vision in all of his films, you you can see that he wouldn't need to be aping what someone else had done. He wouldn't need to be parroting it in any way. We've got the scrap iron, these crazy turrets, smokestacks, cranes, vestigial bat wings hanging off the side, right? And these walking talons. It's just a mess. But, you know, if you ever wanted an image of the gears are just glued on, it's it's Howl's Moving Castle. Like, it doesn't make sense. It is quite possibly the best example of techno-fantasy in all of steampunk. I wanted 
it for my cover of my book, but uh, I couldn't do it because I was told that you don't mess with the mouse. Um, and Disney had the uh, distribution rights to Howl's Moving Castle at the time that my book came out. It just makes me sad every time I think about it because if I could have just had some Miyazaki on the cover of my book. <laughs> anyway, uh, why do I think it's one of the greatest examples of techno fantasy? It's not just because there's no way that that thing makes any sense as an industrial machine, but it's literally powered by a fire demon. And this is a little bit, you know, me just reaching back to a short story that we just looked at, uh, Elementals by Ian, Ian McLeod. And I mean, that's not really what the short story is about ultimately, but there is this thing at the beginning where they're like, well, if we could just get Elementals to power our steam vessels, huh? Um, and once upon a time playing a steampunk role-playing game, um, one of the guys was like, I can get that train going and, you know, I'll just cast fireball into the, into the, the boiler for the, for the steam engine, right? Magic making the steam engine go. This is not the high pressured steam ball of steam boy, but rather unabashed magic right? Howell himself is a magic user. There is a return of the visual aesthetic of Nausicaa with the flying vessels. Um, but these ones have a more animalistic look to them. They, you know, almost like bat wings or dragons or something like that. Uh, they have a quasi industrial look to them, but they are still utterly fantastic. Even the naval vessels, um, that are involved in the war are just hyperbolizations, exaggerations of our idea of what a war vessel is. I think it's one of the coolest things about Howl's Moving Castle, uh, Miyazaki taking a war machine and just ramping it up and ramping it up and ramping it up until it's this it's 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 the essence of the thing rather than a perfect replication of it what's fascinating to me is that we accept what happens in howl's moving castle without question and as soon as as soon as you take the aesthetic of howl's moving castle and you take it out of animation and you move it over into uh f you know real film and you make a movie like mortal engines people are like that couldn't happen that's not realistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the same people were probably like, I love Howl's Moving Castle. Okay, <laughs> then shut up. Because just because one is animated and the other one is, is filmed with real people uh, and sets and whatnot and meant to look sort of photorealistic, it doesn't, doesn't change that you're working with a similar um, uh, aesthetic philosophy, you might say. Once again, I'm thinking about this in terms of inspiration, because with the international success of Spirited Away from Studio Ghibli in 2001, Howl's Moving Castle was a hot commodity. And it did not do as well at the box office as Spirited Away did, but it still did very well. And people who were into anime knew Howl's Moving Castle in North America in 2005. So Steam Boy in 2004, if you were hot for anime, you probably checked out Steam Boy because it was Katsuhiro Otomo. You checked out Howl's Moving Castle because it was Hayao Miyazaki. And these kinds of creative giants producing steampunk in this one-two punch of 2004 to 2005. And by the way, it's about this time, like 2000 and up, that anime starts to make it overseas. That probably largely due to the, uh, the internet. Um, the fandom for anime grows. It was growing through the 90s. 
but reaching a sort of critical mass in the 2000s. 2004, 2005, one-two punch. Can't deny that Otomo and Miyazaki are influential, at the very least. And when I say Otomo, I still mean Miyazaki, because, like I said, I think a lot of what Otomo was doing in Steam Boy is an homage to what Miyazaki did way back when with Castle in the Sky. So, once again, as with Disney, do I really think the Disney of Japan? I'm not really fond of that term, because I think Miyazaki is Miyazaki. He doesn't have to be the Disney of Japan. Um, He's one of the greatest creative minds of the last 50 years. Absolutely one of the greatest creative minds of the last 50 years. And I think he... I don't think Japan got on the steampunk bandwagon. I think that Miyazaki is responsible for Japan having always, arguably, been part of this this ever-evolving, growing machine. And, and again, Howl's Moving Castle, just the perfect icon for the steampunk movement because it it's this weird, doesn't-make-sense machine that, you know, over the course of the film has to evolve and adapt for all sorts of reasons that I'm not going to get into because, again, I don't want to spoil anybody's experience of seeing the movie. Um, regardless of what the rules are concerning spoilers. So, the influence of cinema, if we're going to take anything away from the last two lectures, it's that the influence of cinema is as crucial, if not, and I absolutely think it's more, more crucial than the literature. Everybody talks about the literature. Everybody talks about Verne, and they talk about Wells, and they talk about, you know, their, you know, if Verne and Wells had written history instead of fiction. But when we look at when steampunk is emerging and K.W. Jeter is, is coining the term, we see the development of this Paris of our dreams, not only in Miyazaki's work, I could have talked about a bunch of other anime. I mean, and I, I, I briefly did with Full Metal Alchemist, but steampunk is there because of Japan's fascination with this Paris of our dreams. Not a Victorian vision, but a vague sort of European vision, which has recently transformed to a traditional Japanese vision. So we're getting more steampunk that is combining um, early periods of Japanese fashion and architecture with this industrial steampunk hyper-vintage aesthetic. So when I did my dissertation way back when I did it with mostly literature, because that was what I was doing my degree in. I was getting my PhD in comparative literature. But if I had to do it over again, I would absolutely have argued more strenuously. I didn't really argue strenuously at all at the time, but I think I would have tried to develop. If I could go back in time, I would say to to me in 2008, yes, absolutely do this PhD on steampunk. But here's a tip. Guy's name is Hyao Miyazaki. You haven't watched enough of his stuff. You've only seen Princess Mononoke you gotta get on this (laughs) because I really think that um, Miyazaki um, Miyazaki and these other creative minds who worked with some of his ideas were instrumental in the development of the steampunk aesthetic 